0: We'll find a Bible this morning, open to the book of Philippians, we're in chapter 1, there's some notes in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along in the notes, Philippians 1. While you turn to Philippians 1, I'll just admit to you, I'm a little bit nervous this morning, there was a lot of you who tagged me on Facebook this week about you're going to throw Gatorade on my head this morning, since it's Super Bowl Sunday, so... Something about it, when you make a good point, Gatorade, so I'm going to try to preach the worst sermon you've ever heard. No good points this morning. I try not to be too jumpy. It's one of those Sundays you're glad you don't have a choir behind you. You never know, one of those choir members is going to come running out. Philippians 1, 18 to 26, we're actually picking up sort of in the middle of verse 18, You can see there's a paragraph split in most translations, so we're going to pick up the last part of verse 18 and go to 26. I'm just going to give you the big idea this morning, and then we're going to read through the passage and talk about it. The big idea is this. Paul was able to rejoice in life and in death because Jesus was his great treasure. Paul is able to think about life, and he's able to think about death And regardless of what's coming his way, he's able to rejoice. He's able to worship with joy because Jesus is the great treasure of his life. That's the big idea. Now let's read the passage. Follow along, Philippians 1. We're picking up in the middle of verse 18. Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ... This will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain." If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith." So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at these verses that are familiar to many of us, as we think about the heart of this passage where Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We pray that you would help us to hear what is familiar with new ears this morning. Help us to see truth in what Paul is writing to his friends in Philippi. Help us to understand how he could rejoice regardless of his circumstance. Father, help us to see how it applies to our lives today. Father, we pray before we even begin, we pray for people in the room who do not know Jesus as their great treasure. We pray for people in the room who have not made Jesus the blazing, burning center of their life. And Father, we pray that as we talk about the scriptures this morning, as we think about how they apply to our lives, that your spirit would bring conviction to hearts of people in this room, that you would change hearts and open eyes to the truth. And Father, that we would be a people who love Jesus more than anything else in this world, anything else in the next world, Father, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Human beings will do remarkable things to stay alive. I had a whole lot of good examples of this that I came across this week when I started digging around, but I'll just share one with you. Some of you guys remember the name Aaron Ralston. A couple of years ago, about a decade, actually it's been over a decade ago, he was hiking in Utah in Blue John Canyon, Uh, He wasn't just hiking, he was canyoneering. I had to look that up this week. And basically, I think canyoneering is hiking in a canyon, but it sounds way cooler than hiking in a canyon. So he's, he's canyoneering through Blue John Canyon, and somehow a boulder gets displaced, and it comes down this sort of narrow chute of these two cliff faces, and it pins his arm up against the wall, and he's stuck there. And he's canyoneering all by himself, which is probably not the smartest thing to do, And he's stuck with his arm in this boulder, and he can't get out. And he ends up spending 127 hours stuck alone in this canyon with his arm pinned up against the wall. He's not the kind of guy that has a lot of weight to lose, but in five days and about seven hours, he lost 40 pounds. He lost 25% of his blood volume as he sat there with his arm pinned up against that rock. And if you know the story or maybe you've seen the movie, I haven't seen the movie they made about this, but he takes his pocket knife out and he amputates his arm so that he can get free. He realizes nobody's coming. And he's got to get out, and he says, I want to survive. I don't want to die here pinned in this canyon. And so he amputates his arm with a, a pocket knife, a sort of a multi purpose tool. And then he's not home free because he's still in the middle of this canyon all by himself. And so he's got to hike a couple of hours out of this canyon. He's got to rappel down a 60 foot cliff with one arm. And he sort of gets to the bottom of this cliff and he's stumbling around. And apparently there's a Dutch family hiking, not canyoneering, but hiking through this trail. And they come across him and they find him. And there he is with one arm missing. And uh, I read this detail this week. I thought it was worth mentioning. They gave him Oreos. He hadn't had anything to eat. And they had Oreos in their backpack, So they gave him Oreos and they gave him water. And they got him to safety. And uh, He survived lived to make a movie about it, lived to write about it and give speeches about it and all kinds of different things. For those of you who are curious, they did go back for the arm. It was there, left, and they went back for it. It took 13 men and a winch and a hydraulic jack to move that boulder out so that they could get his arm and he cremated it and, you know, scattered it out in the canyon somewhere for for good measure. Just I, you, you wanted to know that. You know you wanted to know that detail. <laughs> You were wondering, what did they do with the arm? That's what they did with the arm. And look, I could give you story after story after story of human beings who do remarkable things to survive. Things that when you hear it, you sort of get uneasy and you think, I don't know if I could do that. But you haven't been in those situations. And so it's possible you don't know what you would be capable of doing when you sort of get this desire, this will to, I've got to survive this. I want to live through this. And look, I could give you dramatic examples like a guy using a multipurpose tool to amputate his arm. Or I could give you more mundane, quote-unquote mundane examples about people surviving cancer. And chemotherapy and the radiation and the rigors of that and the pain of that and the, the misery of that. Human beings are tough. And they can do remarkable things to stay alive. Which is why when you turn to this passage in Philippians 1 and you're listening to Paul, it's almost shocking to hear him say, I'm hard-pressed between the two, verse 23, talking about living or dying, and he says, for me, to depart and be with Christ would be far better. This is not a wimpy guy. This is a guy who had his own survival stories, right? This is a guy who in one place was stoned left for dead, and everyone thought that's the end of Paul, but he gets back up and he goes right back into the city they drug him out of in the first place. This is the guy who is beaten time and time and time again for telling people, for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a guy put on a boat, sent to Rome. The boat crashes, it shipwrecks, and he literally has to swim to shore for his life. Paul knew a thing or two about survival, and he's writing to his good friends in Philippi, and it's just sort of surprising to hear him say, it's almost like he has a death wish. He says, I want to just depart. I want to leave. I want to be done with all of this, and it would be gain for me to die. To live as Christ. Don't get me wrong, but to die is gain. It's one of those passages you come to in Philippians. Earlier, a few weeks back, we talked about coffee cup verses. It's one of those verses that you know from Philippians. When you come through and you read it, you say, Ah, I've heard that before. I've read that before. I've seen it on a t-shirt, or I've got it on my mug at home, or it's on a poster that I hang on my wall. So we're familiar with it. I just don't know how many of us could honestly say, This is my mindset today. And I'm not just talking about the dying is gain part. I'm talking about the living is Christ part. And so this morning, we're going to take this familiar passage. We're going to think it through, try to break it down. There's nine verses. You can break them into sort of three sections, and we're going to do that. We're going to talk about these three sections of verses and point out a few things as we go. So the first group of verses is 18, 19, and 20. And it's Paul giving the reason for future rejoicing. He's explaining why he's going to rejoice in the future. So he begins and he says, yes, I will rejoice. Now, the sermon series is called Rejoice because all the way throughout the book, you could just circle them and draw lines. Over and over again, he talks about rejoicing. I'm going to rejoice. I want you to rejoice. And he talks about joy. That's connected with this idea of rejoicing. He's worshiping with joy over and over and over again. This instance at the end of verse 18 is a little bit different because it's not something he's doing presently it's something he says i'm going to do it in the future i will rejoice for i know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of jesus christ this will turn out for my deliverance it's my eager expectation and hope that i will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now as always christ will be honored in my body whether by life or death for all of those reasons i will in the future rejoice it's a remarkable thing to say for a man who's in prison and doesn't know what will happen tomorrow he doesn't know if he's going to stand before caesar tomorrow he doesn't know if his his case and his hearing is going to be dismissed he doesn't know if he's going to be condemned and sentenced to death He doesn't know if he's going to be set free and he's going to get to go back to Philippi, but the one thing that he does know, for all the uncertainty in his life, he says, lots of things uncertain, one thing certain, I will rejoice. It's not based on my circumstances. It's not based on my situation. I am in the future going to worship God and I am going to do it with joy. Now notice a couple of things about that. He's confident in his eternal salvation that's one of the reasons he can say future tense I will rejoice it's because he is confident in his future salvation I I know that in verse 19 some of your translations I looked up this week different words that are used in verse 19 a lot of translations are like the one I'm reading and in verse 19 says uh, he says this is going to turn out for my deliverance some of your translations use the same word this is going to turn out for my deliverance I don't know about you, but when I read that idea, it's going to turn out for my deliverance, I think, okay, that means he thinks he's going to get out. He's going to be delivered from prison. He's in this difficult spot. He's chained to a Roman guard, and he's confident. Maybe he knows some inside information, or he's heard rumors, or I don't know, but he's confident that he's going to be released. That's not his confidence. He says, I'm confident. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Verse 20. And that might be life or death. Both of those ideas, life and death, fall under what Paul is talking about when he says, this will work out for my deliverance. And the word he actually uses is the word, every other time Paul uses it in his letters, we translate it salvation. Salvation. And what he's saying is, I know that whatever's going to happen to me, ultimately I'm going to be saved. Nothing's going to change that. Caesar can't change that. This Roman guard chained to me can't change that. Me being unchained and getting to go to Philippi won't change that. Whether it's my life or my death, this will work out for my deliverance, meaning my salvation. Hold your spot right here in Philippians and just flip a few pages to the right and look at 2 Timothy. Just a few pages. 2 Timothy 4. This is a letter that Paul wrote to his, his protege, Timothy. Paul eventually got released. He got unchained from that Roman guard that he's chained to in Philippians. And then later he got put back in prison. So in 2 Timothy, he's back in prison for the second time in Rome. Not chained to a, a prisoner, but chained down in a dungeon. Okay? And he's writing to Timothy. And look what he says in 2 Timothy this is the last, the last letter that Paul wrote. He says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. That's the exact same confidence that he had back in Philippians 1. He's going to rescue me from every evil deed. I hear that and I say, oh, so you're going to get out of prison? I mean, you shouldn't be there in the first place, so he's going he's to get you out and everything's going to be good. You're going to get to go home. And he says, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. This rescue that I'm talking about means he's going to bring me safely into his kingdom. Caesar might lop my head off in two days. It doesn't matter. Jesus is going to bring me into his kingdom. And he's saying the same thing to the Philippians here in chapter 1. This will work out for my deliverance, for my salvation. He's confident in it. I want you to have the same confidence that Paul had. I want you to have the same unshakable confidence that no matter what happens in your life tomorrow or the next day or next month or next year, it will work out for your salvation. You don't get that confidence by going on a mission trip like Paul did. Mission trips won't give you that confidence. Getting wet upstairs behind the the stage won't get you that confidence. You don't get that confidence by praying the right formulaic prayer and saying the right rote words, repeating after somebody, and you know, sort of just making some statement like, I said the words, now I have the confidence. You get that confidence, the confidence Paul has, where he says, This will work out for my salvation, when you believe Jesus in John nineteen thirty, when he says, It is finished. That's what we just sang about. When you believe and you can sing, Jesus paid all of it. There's nothing else I have to do. He's not asking me to contribute to my deliverance or to my salvation. He paid the price. He died for sinners, standing between us and a wrathful holy God, and He took our judgment. And when He was done taking it, He said, It's finished. It's done. Literally, it's paid. All accounts are clear. And when you believe that Jesus saying that says it to your life and it's true for you, and you can sing what we just sang, what the band led us in, and you can sing genuinely from your heart and say, I believe that Jesus paid all of it. Then you walk away with the kind of confidence that Paul has in Philippians 1. You don't get it through ritual. You don't get it through ceremony. You don't get it through some certificate we can give you. You don't get it by learning and memorizing a bunch of Bible verses. You get it when you believe Jesus paid all of it. And Paul got that. And he says, It doesn't matter if it's my life or my death, this is going to work out for my deliverance, for my salvation, because my debt, my penalty, my judgment has been paid, it's been taken. He also had hope. I want you to see this in these verses. He had hope that Christ would be magnified in his body. Verse 20, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but with full courage Christ will be honored in my body. That word hope, you know this if you've been in church for any length of time. Biblical hope is much stronger than the kind of hope we talk about is really not even worth comparing the two. You almost just have to shift your mind into thinking about something categorically different. Because I say things like, Man, I hope the Patriots don't win tonight. <laughs> or I say, Man, I hope Brady shows up to the Super Bowl party with a big old bowl of queso like he said he was, because I like his queso. I hope he makes it. Or I say, I hope the Cowboys make it to the Super Bowl next year. Hope, hope, hope. All those things are sort of, eh, you know, could go one way, could go the other. But when Paul says, I hope that Jesus will be honored, literally magnified through my body, through my life. He's not talking about something like, "Eh, it may happen or it may not happen. He's talking about something where he has confidence. He's talking about something with certainty. And he says, I have unshakable, rock-solid hope that if I live through this, that in my life, in my body, Christ will be magnified. He's going to be magnified. I think about magnifying, I think about my great-grandma. And right next to her desk or her uh, her chair in the living room, she had a magnifying glass, a big black magnifying glass. She couldn't see anything. She liked to read her Bible lesson, read the paper. She was a former English teacher forever. So she liked to read literature, and she'd get that magnifying glass out and hold it up. That magnifying glass took something that was hard for her to see and made it visible. And what Paul is saying is, I want Christ to be magnified through me. Meaning, understand that the Philippians can't look out the window and see Jesus. But you can look at me in prison. I'm really here. You can listen to what Epaphroditus says. You can look at me, and my hope is that when you look at me, I'm not pointing you to myself, but you just look right through me and you see Jesus. That I take in my life what is hard for people to see and understand and I make it visible. To them, that when people look at my life, I'm not magnifying Paul, but I'm pointing them to Jesus and helping them to see Jesus. That's what he says. He's confident in his salvation and he has hope that Christ would be magnified. Then you get to the heart of the passage, right? We get to this part where Paul is weighing life and death. You know, I want you to understand, Paul is not going to get to choose if he's going to live or if he's going to die, but he's just sort of weighing it as if he had the choice. I, I don't know which one I would choose if I could. Would I, would I choose life and fruitful ministry, which is necessary for you guys? I could, I could get out of here, and I could have ministry again, and I could go teach and preach in Philippi, and that would be great for you. Or I could just die, and that would be gain. I could just depart, and that would be far better, he says. And he's weighing these options. I want you to think about a couple of realities. Number one, Jesus was the animating force of his life. You Think about the word animating. You think about something being brought to life. An animated film is a still picture that seemingly is brought to life. And Paul understood Jesus is the thing that brings me to life, that animates me. You could say that in, a, in the sense of salvation like we've talked about. You could say Paul understood that left to himself he was spiritually dead and Jesus made him alive. That would be one part of this. He, he animated him. He brought him to life. But even beyond that, what I'm trying to say to you is Jesus was the thing that got Paul excited. Jesus was the thing that made him wake up in the morning with a purpose. I don't know what that is in your life. I bet I could spend five minutes with you and figure it out. I could ask you questions and, you know, I might bring something up and I might bring up the Super Bowl and you just sort of your eyes glaze over and I say, okay, sports isn't it. What about your grandkids? For a lot of you, it would be grandkids or kids. Start talking about those grandkids and kids and asking questions and you would be animated. Your eyes would light up and you'd get excited. For some of you, it would be politics and it might be one group or another group, but I could bring up one of those groups and I could get you going and you would be animated quick. You'd be excited. It would bring passion right to your face, to your voice, to your eyes. You'd be able to see it. For some of you, maybe it's a hobby. Ask you about something that you enjoy doing in your spare time or some skill that you have and I could talk to you about it and man, you'd get excited immediately. What I'm telling you is the animating force in Paul's life was Jesus. That's why he says to live is Christ that's my focus that's the most important thing that's what brings me joy that's what gets me up in the morning that's what makes me excited I'm not trying to tell you that Kansas Jayhawk basketball shouldn't get you excited it gets me excited I'm not trying to tell you that your kids or your grandkids shouldn't get you excited they should get you excited I'm not trying to lay some sort of churchy guilt trip on you so you feel bad about all the things you love in life. I'm just saying, one of those things in your life ought to be Jesus. He should not be the thing that someone brings up in conversation and you just sort of lean back and your eyes glaze over and you say, Oh, it's Monday, why are we talking about Jesus? We're supposed to be talking about football, we're supposed to be talking about politics. That's church stuff. When somebody brings up Jesus, it ought to animate you. It ought to excite you. There ought to be some sort of connection you feel. Where somebody brings it up and you say, hey, I know about that. I've experienced that. I've gone through that. I've wrestled with that. I've struggled through that. Ought to be one of the animating forces in your life, just like it was for Paul secondly I want you to understand this Jesus was the reason that Paul longed for heaven so we're looking at both sides of it we're looking at this to live as Christ this animating force in his life but we're also talking about to die as gain and what I'm telling you is Jesus was the part of heaven that got Paul excited this week I was kind of this week and last week I was kind of under the weather kind of had the cold that everybody's had and still kind of getting over that coughing and you sound terrible and you just kind of feel cruddy. And I came home one evening and I said to my wife, I said, you know, I can't wait for the new heavens and the new earth. No more allergies, no more colds, no more junk. We get it all the time. The weather gets hot and cold and the dust and all the junk and you just feel Cruddy, and I said, I just can't wait to be done with that. And I know that's small and that's petty. Some of you have health concerns that are way worse than my cold, and you say, Oh, suck it up, Pastor. That's not a big deal. You don't know anything. But you know what I'm saying? You just sort of say, Oh, I can't wait for heaven when I don't have to deal with this stuff anymore. And there's going to be lots of great things about heaven. It's going to be a place of beauty like you cannot imagine, it's going to be a place of reunion. Not for all of our loved ones, but for our loved ones who have died in the Lord. Who have died loving Jesus more than anything else. There's going to be a reunion with those people. But I just want to warn you that a lot of times we get excited, myself included. We get excited about heaven for all the wrong reasons. We're going to see Aunt Flossie. We won't have to take allergy pills anymore. It's going to be streets of gold instead of bumpy university. It's going to be so great. And all that stuff's going to be great. But the best part is Jesus. And if you can sit back and think about heaven and the reunion with your loved ones and the streets of gold and the beauty and the no more sickness and no more pain, if you can think about all that stuff and Jesus isn't at the center of it as the most important thing, you've totally missed it. Even worse, you will totally miss it. You understand a sincere desire to go to heaven when you die is not enough to let you go to heaven when you die. You ask anybody in Odessa, Texas, do you want to go to heaven when you die? Absolutely. I certainly don't want the alternative. You also understand that just desiring that is not enough to go there. Because if your desire for heaven is centered on you and your comfort and the things that you're going to enjoy, you've missed it. Streets of gold and no more allergy pills and the reunion with loved ones, all that stuff is secondary, a distant second to Jesus. That's why Paul says, for me to live as Christ, but you know what? If I die, that's okay too, because it's gain. It's profit in my account if I actually die. Not because he wanted to see streets of gold. Not because he missed his friends who had died and gone before him. Not because he he was tired of having allergies as he traveled up and down these dusty roads. It's because he knew when I go to heaven, I get more Jesus. Direct Jesus. That's why it's gained. So he understands that he's longing for heaven. He's desiring heaven. He says, heaven would be far better. For me to depart would be far better because Jesus is the center of that. Last little section of verses before we move to application 25 and 26. Paul's talking about the reason he wants to visit them. Meaning, if I get out, if I don't die, if I get to be back with you, this is what I'm looking forward to. It's pretty simple. He wants spiritual maturity. He wants them to mature spiritually, he wants them to grow in joy, and he wants them to glory in Jesus Christ. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Okay, All of this is just Paul's way of piling up terms saying, I want you to keep moving forward. As believers, I don't want you stuck in neutral. I don't want you plateaued on some, some level where you've reached this level of spirituality and you feel like you've arrived now. I want you to keep pressing on. I want you to keep increasing in joy. I want you to keep making progress in your faith. Look, some of you sit in the room and you say, I just feel like I'm p- totally plateaued. I just feel like, you know, I got, I got saved, I got baptized, I, I made this decision at some point in my life, and I just feel like I'm right there. I've never moved past that. And Paul says, that's not at all the goal. It's not some goal that we want people to make a decision for Jesus and then we just leave them there. He says, I want you growing. I want you to have more joy and more joy and more joy. I want you to make progress in the faith. I want you from a year from now to know more about Jesus and to love him more then than you do today. Keep pressing on, and we'll see that theme come up in Philippians as we continue our study. So let's talk about application. We'll wrap up application. How do these coffee cup verses apply to our lives? Number one, if you have the right perspective on Jesus, it will change everything in your life. If you get Jesus, you understand and you have the right perspective on who he is, it will change everything. Everything Paul says here, whether he's rejoicing, or whether he's living, or whether he's dying, it is all centered on Jesus. The heart of what we do on Sunday mornings when we gather in this room, you understand this? The core of it, the center of it, is Jesus. It is not a style of music. It is not ritual or ceremony that we do. It is not some sort of creed or confession that sort of a, a guideline of what we believe and how we believe. The core of it, the heart of it, is knowing Jesus. Some people, especially in the Bible Belt, some people have been around church stuff for so long, they evaluate Jesus based on all these external things creeds and doctrines and rituals. And ceremonies and external churchy stuff. And they evaluate Jesus based on that. The heart of what we're doing is Jesus. And if you get that, it changes everything in your life. In the 60s, the Soviets spin up, sent up a, uh, a space probe, space little satellite deal. This is a replica of what it looked like. And they sent it, and it was supposed to go to Venus. Okay? They said, We want to send this thing to Venus, and we want it to land on Venus. And when it lands on Venus we wanna know what conditions are like on the surface of Venus. We wanna know what the, the atmospheric pressure is and what the temperature is and All this sort of stuff. We want to know what life is like on Venus. So they send this space probe up, and it goes, flies through space. It's heading right towards Venus, and it's almost all the way there. It's going towards Venus. They're ready for this crash landing, and all of a sudden, it just stops transmitting. Like all the way through this journey, it's sending back information, facts, data, all these things. And all of a sudden, it stops, and it doesn't send back any more information. And they get you know, their pencils out and their calculators, and they're crunching the numbers. And these Soviet guys say, well, it looks like it stopped transmitting information exactly at the time we thought it was going to crash into the surface of Venus. Like, it, it, we knew it's going to hit Venus at this time, and that's when it stopped. And so they took all the data that they'd collected, and they said, the last numbers we got, this is what life is like on Venus. This is the pressure and the temperature and the light and all these different things. And then another scientist came behind him and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Venus isn't nearly as big as you guys thought it was, meaning the surface is way further away from your impact point than you thought it was. And this old satellite quit transmitting information not when it crashed into Venus. It never made it to Venus. Way out there in the middle of space, it quit transmitting. You don't know anything about Venus The last numbers you got were not right before impact, right on the surface. The last numbers you got were hundreds of miles away from Venus. You missed it. Your calculations are off. You know nothing about Venus. You know about space out there, but not the surface. And some of you sit in this room and you say, yeah, I know all about Jesus. Know all about him. You know, I I can sing the songs from VBS five years ago. And uh, I can tell you the, the answer to the Sunday school questions is probably Jesus or God or the Bible. I know that. And I know the, you know, listen to K-Love during the week. So I know some of the songs you guys sing. And, you know, I know, I know all about Jesus. I, I, I'm in. I got you. I'm tracking with you. And what I'm saying to you is all that stuff is external trappings. You haven't got to the core. You haven't got to the heart of what we're actually talking about until you actually know Jesus. There's a big difference, a world of difference in knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. I know a lot about my favorite players on the Jayhawks basketball team, on the Dallas Cowboys. I can tell you all sorts of facts about these guys, but I don't know them. Some of you are evaluating Jesus and what it means to know him based on external stuff. And you read Paul saying to live as Christ and you say, man, I live for I live for a lot of other things other than Jesus. And maybe Jesus sounds boring to you because you haven't actually got to him. You just stopped with all the externals. So we'll move on to this. The right perspective on life will change the way that you live. You have the right perspective on life, it changes the way you live. That seems kind of obvious, right? Some of you read this passage and you're like me. I can look in your eyes right now and I can see sort of the unease when Paul says, to die is gain. Dying would be gain. And you listen to Paul when he says, I'm hard pressed, but I think it would be far better to depart and be with Jesus. Some of you read that and you say, I don't know that I'm there. I don't know that I can honestly say that. And you think about your kids or your grandkids or you think about your work or you think about hobbies that you enjoy or whatever it may be and you say I, I just don't know that I can honestly agree with Paul. And you're wondering should should I feel guilty that I can't honestly say that that I can't honestly say that I think dying would be gain that it would be far better to leave and to be with Jesus because right now I kind of want to hang around for a while. I just assume sort of stay and see my kids grow up and my grandkids grow up. Should I feel guilty if I can't agree with Paul? And my answer would be maybe. How do you like that for an answer? Maybe. Paul's in a different situation than you are. Paul, as far as we know, doesn't have kids that he wants to see grow up or grandkids that he wants to see grow up. At least if he did, we don't know about that. He doesn't have some of the entanglements that you and I may have. He's a frontier pioneer missionary, just sort of out there on his own. But I don't know that that's enough for me to sort of let myself off the hook and to let you off the hook. I think there's an individual heart issue that you need to wrestle with and I need to wrestle with. And here's what I think the reality is, okay? At least in my life, and I have a, a hunch for a lot of us in the room, A lot of us don't get too excited about death. We don't see it as gain. We don't say it's far better. Because we don't understand that we're going to get Jesus. We've talked about that. But that stuff doesn't seem so exciting to us because right now we're not centered on Jesus. I mean, if in your life right now you're not centered on Jesus, why in the world would you ever see dying as gain? If right now you don't think Jesus is the greatest treasure you could ever obtain or receive or find, why would you be excited about going to heaven and being with him? And Paul, he's able to say, dying is gain, it's far better, because he understands right now in life, he understands life. There's nothing better than Jesus now. And when you get that sort of perspective on life, it will change the way you live. And then we'll end with this idea, sort of the flip side. The right perspective on death will also change the way that you live. The right perspective on death will change the way that you live. When Paul says it would be gain and far better to go and be with Jesus, it reminds me of a guy named John G. Patton. He was a Scotsman in the 1800s and early 1900s. And he felt this calling on his life to go be a missionary in the South Pacific. And he sort of pinpointed a place where he wanted to go. It was not exactly a safe place. And he had a friend who came to him before he left Scotland and said, Hey, buddy, this, I don't know that this is the smartest idea. I don't know that you want to take this risk. We know there are cannibals where you're going. And said, You and your family, you could be eaten by cannibals. And this is what Patton said in response. He said, Mr. Dixon, this was his buddy, you're advanced in years, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. That should be grave, not grace. There to be eaten by worms. That's a nice way of saying, man, you're about to die, and the worm's going to eat you up. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. That's a guy who understands death, right? Worms, cannibals, it's all the same. And it changes the way he lives. People who don't get that perspective on death look at him and say, you're crazy for taking that risk and going to to take the gospel to those people. And this guy gets death and he says, there's no risk involved. Worms, cannibals, it doesn't matter. Death is death. Jesus has saved me. And in the end, when he comes back, my body will be made new just like yours. You get death. It changes the way you live. You add all that up together, and I think you just end up back with the big idea. You say, Paul is a guy who, whether he's facing life, whether he's facing death, he can rejoice It's not just because he's detached from this world. It's not just because he's sort of superhero missionary guy. It's because he sees Jesus as the greatest treasure that he can ever obtain. And he knows, I've got him now, and I will have him forever. And nothing can change that. And it turns this ordinary, sinful, flawed man named Paul into somebody that we look up to and we admire and we aspire to be like. Not because he's greater than us, but because he understands Jesus is the greatest thing that I could ever have. And that's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for your family. And that's my prayer for our church. So let's pray together this morning. Father, open our eyes to the truth. Father, help us to see Jesus as supremely valuable Supremely beautiful. Help us to understand that we have him now through faith. We have him for eternity because of what he's accomplished for us. And Father, forgive us when we settle for lesser things in this life. When we don't center our lives and our hearts and our minds on Jesus Christ. We get distracted by by many other things. Some of them good things. But we let them take the the place of the best thing father we want to be people who rejoice and as we read this letter we understand that we can only be people who consistently worship with joy when we are centered on jesus christ so we pray that you would work that in our lives this morning and we pray it in jesus name amen